As a business owner, you create the conditions for improvement and encourage your team to improve the business. They'll do it. That's the voice of Joe Clark, owner of Architectural Elements. And I'm excited to talk with him right after a quick word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Jobber. Jobber is software to organize and manage your business. From quoting a project to getting paid to everything in between, Jobber software brings everything together to make projects easy to manage and customers happy, giving you more time in your day and getting you paid faster. Go to getjobber.com Ethan or check out the link in the show notes for a free 14-day trial of Jobber. And if you try it now, you get 20% off your first six months when you sign up. Hello and welcome to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson, the show that talks about the business behind the furniture business. On this episode, I sit down with Joe Clark, owner of the Bellingham Washington Company Architectural Elements. As you will hear, before Joe started his company, he tested a lot of different waters to find out what was right for him. His path was a winding one, full of good and bad experiences, which shaped what his company would become. Today, his company employs over 50 people and produces projects for some of the most well-known names across the globe. A far cry from where he started, but that is the beauty of the journey. It's not where you start, but where you take yourself. Follow along as we talk about building your media portfolio to capture more business, growing your company on your own terms, managing employees, and much more. Joe and I talk about a lot in this episode, so let's get into it and hear about his journey in his own words. Yeah, yeah, I suppose the, the journey started with uh, my parents, I guess, you know, like anybody's journey. <laughs> um, you know, I grew up in a, a house where my dad was always a tradesman, and uh, I think he started out as a locksmith, and uh and did a few other things, but basically spent most of his career as an electrician. And uh, he was the kind of guy who was definitely a do-it-yourselfer, would do most anything on his own. You know, he had a always had a garage, you know, and, and tools and what have you, and never afraid to take something on, you know. And uh, so I just kind of grew up in that environment, I suppose, and didn't really think much of it. When you're a kid, you don't re- actually realize that being around somebody that can do things is actually somewhat unusual. But uh, in terms of... Uh, you know, just having that exposure. Um, it was interesting though, because I didn't really take to, you know, electrician work or trades work or anything like that. I didn't think it was a goal of mine. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And so I just, you know, got out of high school and I worked at a window factory, which was pretty interesting. You know, I learned all aspects of window manufacturing, you know, from cutting glass to shipping all the way through. And, uh, you know, I got, I thought I was going to be a supervisor there and I went through the supervisor training, you know, and did well at all the aspects of it, but just realized I didn't want to do that for a living. And uh, I remember the, the general manager telling me, you know, after me going through the, the supervisory program, he's like, you know, I really don't think this is for you, you know, and I don't think it was because I was uh, bad at it. Um, I think it just, he saw that I probably needed to do something a little bit bigger. So anyway, from there, I just went into delivered pizza, like a lot of people do at that age, you know, and uh, um, worked a couple of menial jobs, but eventually uh, started at an electrical sign shop owned by a friend of my good friend. And uh, 
you know, not knowing the biological signs, they just sort of hired me as an apprentice and it was a super small shop. So it was kind of cool that I, I got to work very close one-on-one with a, with a guy who basically taught me all about metal fabrication, which, you know, included sheet metal and light, light angled iron and square tube type fabrication and a little bit of heavier fab, but all kinds of other stuff too associated with making signs, you know, it's a super diverse trade. Um, electrical, there's lots of wiring, um, high voltage with neon signage and, and uh, with fluorescent lamps and things of that nature. And, and uh, all the sheet metal side was always interesting. Um, learning how to paint, work with plastics, uh, work with vinyl and all that type of stuff for making the graphics. So it was a really interesting experience. And, uh, you know, I was working with him for quite some time. And then he got a job at a, at a higher end sign shop you know, it was down in Seattle and they were doing cool stuff for like Disneyland and Universal Studios and stuff. And uh, as soon as he could, he, he got me hired on there. And I, I went and worked there for a while and did some really cool stuff, um, mostly down the Seattle area there. But it's, uh, it was really cool to sort of refine your skills. You know, you've probably run into this before where you think you know how to do something until you, you learn from somebody who knows how to do it. <laughs> and uh comes a real education real quick, but uh, it was fun to sort of up the level there in terms of uh, fabrication ability and what have you and skills training. And I was uh, dating my, my wife, Sheila. Of course, she started out as a girlfriend and went through the regular process of girlfriend, fiance, then wife per normal. Uh, but anyway, we, she was going to the University of Washington there and uh, looking at going to Western Washington University up in Bellingham here to get her teaching certificate. So she did that, and I, I sort of began to commute over the uh, like year and a half while she was going to school up here. And uh, when she graduated, we decided to make our life up here in Bellingham. You know, I had lived here when I was young and just always loved it. It just sort of speaks to my soul in terms of the, the environment, how green it is, and just beautiful. We decided to make our lives here. So I worked at a couple of shops here doing sign work and what have you because I knew it pretty well. But, you know... Because I'm the kind of guy who's always interested in learning something new, I, I did go out and try a couple of new things. Uh, one of them was I went and worked at a structural steel shop for about a year. It was kind of interesting learning how to fit I-beams and do all that sort of you know heavy steel work, run three thirty seconds dual shield, you know, and have that experience. That's pretty pretty intense. But uh, also they they did a uh, kind of high detail stuff for Boeing as well. They had a sort of an aluminum fab shop. It was what I would describe as sort of structural aluminum. And it was cool to go over there and learn how to learn how to properly weld from guys who were trained by Boeing technicians. There's a lot of guys that think they know how to weld aluminum until you know, they're put into an environment where it actually really matters. And it's like, oh, okay. So anyway, they didn't let me weld <laughs> uh, because they had guys that were just so much better than everybody else. But uh, I was definitely the fitter there and I could, I could fit the stuff up perfect form every time and they loved that. But I did learn a lot about aluminum welding there and uh, was able to use that later on in my career. Let's see, from there, oh gosh, what did I do? Um, I sometimes get the sequence messed up, but... Uh, I think that from there, I might have went back to the sign business. Uh, you know, the sign business is, is one of those trades like many where you can kind of bounce in and out of it whenever you want because it's always there. But uh, after that, after stint in the sign business, uh, I did high-end carpentry for a high-end home builder in the Bellingham market. 
and uh, you know, high-end homes in Bellingham are much different than they are in some places. You know, a little more modest here for sure, but they still make very nice homes. I, you know, was a skilled metal fabricator, but I was not a skilled finished carpenter necessarily. So they considered me a number two carpenter. Um, and, you know, so I got to do all the stuff like the base moldings and things like that in the house, you know, and the, the less desirable trim carpentry work, which I was very good at. And, uh, you know, I obviously worked my way up there, but I always called myself the ace of base, you know, because they would always give me the, the carpentry work to do. But uh, nonetheless, I got real good at it. And uh, I can trim and case out a window with the best of them and do even ornate carpentry as well. But, you know, having done that for a couple of years, I kind of reevaluated what I want to do. And and uh, I actually decided to go try something else. And uh, I did aluminum boat fabrication for a couple of years. There was this, uh, there was this product here in Bellingham that I saw one time I was just sitting out in this out in the, the yard of a metal fabrication facility there this is this really cool looking boat you know it's like it's all faceted looking and then I can get close to it because it was behind chain link but I started to think about like who is making those boats you know because it wasn't actually made by the company that was storing it but I was able to track it down it turned out it was this company called aluminum chambered boats and uh they were a Bellingham company. And uh, so I went and checked them out and I got hired. I had a lot of different hats there. It was a, a relatively small company, but I did drafting for them. Um, I did create all the parts libraries. I basically did the sort of patterning department and the cut department. I was sort of managed that on a lead level. And it was very analog, you know, this is well into the area of laser cutting and CAD drawing and everything, but they did everything just completely analog. Every pattern, for example, was laid out on hardboard masonite and you'd slap the masonite down on your big old 16 foot by six foot sheet of aluminum, trace it out with a Sharpie and then cut it with a skill saw. I guess I'd kind of describe it as analog way to learn the trades and it's actually was I think it's sort of fundamental to the reason why that I'm good at what I do is that every shop that I worked at seemed like it was quite analog. Even going back to the sign shop or especially there, we didn't have anything computerized except for one machine that cut the vinyl. We didn't even have a table saw. We had to <laughs> cut aluminum by utilizing a router and a long straight edge, you know, to cut strips of aluminum. Uh, we had to hand cut all the letter bags for the channel letters and things that we would make, popped thousands of rivets. And, and remember, it was funny, we'd always use the abrasive disc saw, you know, it was like the worst possible saw to, to cut anything with, but it was like the only saw we had. So anyway, those, all those experiences where, you know, you're just doing everything by hand, so to speak, just really cements the fundamentals and uh, makes it so when it's time to use computers and machinery, you can use them all the better because you understand the fundamentals behind. You are definitely the definition of learning on the job. It, it, all, all your skills come from being excited about 
a new skill set and you follow that and and one could see yeah, that yeah. as jumping around to a lot of different jobs but one could also see that as becoming incredibly well-rounded for when you start your own company to be able to do everything and not only to be able to do everything but to be able to understand how all the parts fit together in all the other yeah, different sure. industries around you to make it happen. Yeah. And that's, that's particularly in some cases, even more so than other in terms of my experience, like for example, working in high-end residences definitely sort of prepared me to build architectural metals for high-end residences. I kind of use the staircase as an example. You need to know what's underneath those treads in order to build a rail that's going to attach to them. So yeah, it's definitely for sure. I, I use the workplace as training and I, I'm you know a little conflicted in my own mind as to whether or not I was actually dissatisfied or if I was actually trying to train myself for, for future goals, you know, I think it was a little bit of both, you know, it's okay. And I think, I think there's this mindset that you've got to stay at a place for 10 years and that's what success looks like. I don't, I don't think that's necessarily true. I think it can be true for people, but if you're moving around just because you're just generally dissatisfied and unhappy, it's one thing, but if you're actually working towards training yourself to bettering yourself, to making a future for yourself, then that's another thing as well. I think it could be both, you know, it could be good, could be bad, but in my case, it definitely worked out for the better. I'm definitely, you know, draw on all of these things that I learned in the various trades on a daily basis. And the reason why my company, Architectural Elements, can offer such diverse offerings is largely because of my experience. Not solely, but as the business owner, you know, you have to be comfortable with doing a variety of things. And obviously, you have to have a team that can do it, right? But if the business owner isn't comfortable with doing it, you're just going to do what they're comfortable with. So one of the things that makes, you know, my company so cool is that we just do interesting things that we are comfortable doing because it's just sort of another type of fabrication. It's another medium. It's another discipline. I definitely am the guy that seeks new things, wants to learn new things, wants to see new things. You know, I take a different way home every day if I could, you know, just because I, I don't want to travel the same path every day. The work we do is definitely cool. It's engaging and and because we seek out unusual projects, you know, they, they come to us and it's, it's seems a little bit, I don't know, it's almost a little bit embarrassing sometimes the weird things that we do. I don't know if embarrassing is the right word, but you know, it's like we're, we're involved in putting a 747 in a building in Seattle currently recently did a really cool sculpture. It was like a 20 foot tall stack of speakers that were made of aluminum and bronze. And that's in a park in Seattle. Uh, we did, you know, a solid stainless steel staircase that we blackened with patina and we installed that over a water feature inside of the building for basically the charitable side of a multinational coffee mogul, I guess. I don't know how to describe it. Anyway, you know, just other things that we do on a daily basis. It's just kind of incredible. All credit to the team because they're the ones that get it done. I know you use the term embarrassing as sort of a joking around term, like, oh, we do so many crazy things that it's a little bit funny to think about. But the projects you do and the clients you've worked for are as far away from 
embarrassing as possible. You and your team build some really fantastic pieces for some really special clients. And that is an impressive place to have your business, to be able to bring your business to that point where you're working with these giant companies, or you're working with these incredibly high-end home builders, or you're working with these very exciting clients. So how did you start from being a sign builder, a boat builder, a trim carpenter, a pizza delivery guy to running this company with a large team making amazing projects? Part of it is that I just have sort of a natural drive to do best at whatever it is I'm doing, I suppose. And it's just, when I say natural, it's just, I just don't even think about it. Otherwise, like, why would I even think about not being the best at what we do? You know, it doesn't even come into my mind, right? So in terms of, you know, what that looks like, looks like, you know, just if you're a one-man shop, which I was, and I think everybody has been at one point in time, is just trying to get to the next step within your local market. It's like, okay, well, I now I'm working with that contractor and he does fine homes, but there's somebody who does even better homes. I'm just going to keep working that person on a sales standpoint until they give me a shot. And then you've got to do good work, obviously. Maybe it's not as obvious as some as it is to me, but, <laughs> but you got to do good work like every time. And uh you can have failures, but those failures need to be pretty far and few between. And if you do screw up, you know, everybody does. It's all about just fixing it and making sure your customer's happy. You know, you can't be afraid to lose money on a job. That's for sure. Because uh, as soon as you refuse to go back and fix something because you might lose money, then you're going to lose a customer. And uh, it's one thing to lose like a, a residential client or something like that. But if you lose a general contractor as a customer, you've lost a whole revenue stream in the future. So you got to take care of your customers. That's for sure. But it's, you know, the, I think the key is just, you know, doing really good work over a long period of time and just sort of grinding on it. Grinding obviously is sort of a, a metaphor for business, but it's a reality in metal fabrication as well, obviously. carries a little extra meaning there when you're literally grinding at 10 o'clock at night because you're trying to get something done so you can put a finish on it and get it installed the next day or whatever the case is. But yeah, I think, I think the, the key is just to not be satisfied um, with where you're at, which is kind of an interesting thing too because there's different goals for different people in life. Some people want to have a small business. They want to have time to go mountain biking on the weekend and they don't want to be all stressed out or whatever. Other people want different things. For me, I guess I just wanted to just kind of keep going. There's no necessarily end game of like having a certain amount of money or anything like that. It's just about about progress, I guess. And I have goals, everybody should, but for me, a goal is, it's kind of like a mile marker on the freeway. It's not something that you sort of coast up to. It's just something you pass full speed on the way to the next goal. I guess just sticking with it and accepting no less than the best for yourself. I guess that's how you get there. I know it's different for everyone, I suppose.
those are answers for sort of the, I want to say the spiritual side of the business where you're, you're thinking and pushing yourself and the mental side and you're grinding, like you said, and it's, it's in your head. I need to be better. I need to do this better. I need to remember to do this better. I can't mess up here. I need to do this. And that's personal growth and what you're putting out there. But there's also that business side, the actual running the business, which is something that you're also really good at because you grew this company from a one person shop to where it is today. So let's talk about employees. Sure. Because when you go from a one person shop to your first employee all the way up and keep going, you stop becoming necessarily that fabricator, that builder, that furniture maker, and you become a boss of a company. Sure. And that's a different job altogether. You've worked the entire time to be this person who's very good at what your company does. And then the second you start hiring employees, yes, you might stay on and do that, but you also have a completely different job that you haven't been practicing for. So can you talk a little bit about how you decided to make that first jump for employees all the way up to how you've built the team that you have now? Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, in terms of hiring people, you pretty much do it when you've sort of worked yourself to death and you can't do it anymore. (laughs) And usually if you've worked that hard, you've, you've got enough work in place and that you can justify it. Right. And it's always just like everything is a sort of level up and and it really screws with your mind in terms of, you know, trying to prep yourself mentally to make these next steps, right. To sort of, I call it leveling up. It's, you know, going from one person to two people, it's pretty incredible step, really. It might not sound like much, but it's huge. It's, it's a huge step for, for a small shop. For, for me, you know, I, uh, I just basically, you know, just got myself just sold enough work, I guess, to where I had to hire somebody. And my, my first employee was, a. Uh, Somebody I ran into on a job site, he was kind of a carpenter's helper and just tell the guy was super bright. And uh, that's always what I've looked for in, in people is just intelligence. And uh, when they're actually good at doing things as well, that's that's obviously a bonus. So, so but yeah, I hired a guy and uh, he was, he had a degree in like theater set design, um, but he was working as a carpenter there and and I put him to work, you know, and he became, by proxy, became my shop foreman, which is a, a kind of interesting, you know, because, you know, as we grew, he was in a leadership role, but he wasn't necessarily a leader of people. Um, that's, that's another one of the hurdles there is, uh, you know, your, your first employee, he or she may be, you know, your shop leader, but they may not actually be a leader. You know, they, they might be a follower, but nonetheless, uh when you're a small shop and uh, you know, you've hired a few people, you start to have to wear less hats, so to speak. You know, now you don't have to necessarily have to do the drafting, or now you don't necessarily have to do all the fabrication yourself. Um, and the more people you hire, the the less jobs you have to fill. But but you still are sort of filling them because you have to manage those positions. And you have to make sure that they're being done up to the level that's required. But you know, when the when the company when your company grows bigger and bigger, the mentality I have 
because I don't go out there and, and work on metal on a daily basis. Um, the mentality I have relative to the company is the company becomes the product and it should be the whole time. But when you're in a almost sort of strictly management position there, you're in a neat position to be working on your company all the time. And uh, if you are working on your company and refining it almost exactly like you would a project, right? You can do the crude things, you know, but the refinements is where the success is. Eliminating some small process or adding some small process, which adds value or makes things more efficient or makes a better customer experience. That's equivalent to putting a fine finish on something, you know, or whatever the case is. But, but yeah, I, I really, I like to turn my attention towards making the company better and empowering the people that work there to, to do that. Some people are just dying to do it. Really, they're like, "Geez, just give me an opportunity to to improve this thing." And you're like, "Oh, sure, I didn't know you want to do it." Which is sort of the case last week. And I learned that uh, one of our one of our estimators wanted to be involved in process development. It's like, "Awesome, let's do that." And uh, you know, and then some people you have to encourage that because it doesn't come naturally. And one of the questions I'm you know asking my team on a daily basis is. What, what did you improve today? How did you make this company a better company? And my opinion is that if, if you make your company an incredible product, it can, it almost has to produce incredible products. You know, if you uh, are a great product yourself, the byproducts of your company, which would be essentially the things that you make for your customers almost have to be great because the company's great. That's key, I think, you know, is as an owner of the business, you have to create the conditions for these things. If you want to grow, you've got to, you've got to buy more space. So that's called creating the condition for growth. And it's kind of funny. It's like, you know, if you, if you make a bigger space, you almost naturally grow the company. It's just kind of the way it goes. But if, but if as a business owner, you create the conditions for improvement and encourage your team to improve the business, they'll do it. Give them 10 hours a week to work on process and see what they do with it. As a business grows, you got to work on the company. And if you do it right and you have hired the right people, then success is not guaranteed, but it's much more likely. Success is never guaranteed. That's just the nature of business. No matter how hard you work, no matter how great the product you put out is, success is not guaranteed. But one way to get yourself closer to that guarantee of success is through getting your name out there. You can make the best work there is, but if nobody sees it, then you're not going to get any customers. You can be the best at customer service, but if you only have very few customers, then you're not going to be able to grow your business. So marketing your company is an incredibly important part of building your business. I know that's a big way that you grew your business, that you took the projects that you were doing, that you were grinding and making and showed them to the world. And that's how you continued to grow to the point where you are now. So let's talk about 
your marketing strategy and some things that you've done along the way that have worked for you? Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting subject. You know, um, you know, speaking to marketing as sort of a category and of interest of mine, it was it's kind of funny, you know, flashback, I don't know, 20, 25 years ago when I was sort of considering career paths. One of them was manufacturing engineering and the other one was marketing. And uh, I've since sort of gone down both career paths. But uh, yeah, in terms of, you know, marketing and, and sales or whatever, it kind of goes back to what the goal is. If the goal is to, to have a small carpentry shop and go do finished carpentry on homes and work with GCs and what have you and have time to go hiking and do all that kind of stuff. That's great. But if you want to run sort of a woodworking empire or grow high revenues and what have you, then then you've really got to consider marketing on a sort of another level. A lot of people just say, well, I just do word of mouth, you know, and that's fine for somebody wants to have a local business, right? Because word of mouth by definition is just that, right? It's one person speaking to another and they tend to be close to each other. And so if you want to expand beyond the market that you're in, then you need to do more than word of mouth. One of the things that I sort of did early on, which was important and what I consider to be sort of a rudimentary fundamental marketing technique is just taking pictures of your work. You know, I was taking pictures of my work way back when it was it was all 35 millimeter you know i had a stack of pictures and sort of radial photo album that i would take and show people to prove to them that i could do the work i want to sell railings to this gc here's some railings that i did for a home you know just taking pictures of your work is is critical building a portfolio right because you can say that you did this and you did that and it was wonderful but people don't understand it until they see it take the time to stop and take photos. In terms of, you know, actual marketing beyond that, the internet marketing is obviously what everybody's mind goes to. And that's kind of what I really enjoy doing. For me, it looked a lot like taking a lot of photographs and putting them on social media platforms. Specifically for me, I find the most success on LinkedIn. For me, it's the obvious place to do business if you're in business because it's about business. But anyway, I was early to adopt video as one of the things there that was super helpful for me. It was about eight years ago or something like that, uh, maybe closer to 10, I don't know. I started I was watching those reality TV shows just like everybody else, seeing some no-name bike builder get famous and he's on top of the world there because people who knew, knew who he was, you know? And the, so those other shows like Monster Garage or whatever else where these guys that were essentially tradesmen were, were now in a position where their, their names were household names because of just awareness. And the reason why that people were aware of them is because there was video taken up and it was played widely. So just sort of utilizing that as a model, the more eyes that you have on what you do, then the more potential customers that you could have. People can't buy things that they're not aware of, right? They can't hire somebody that they don't know. So on a fundamental level, if you want to grow, you just have to make more people aware of who you are and what you do. What's one of the things I sort of noticed about you, and that's how I came to know you, is your use of video, which I thought was uh, engaging and interesting. And again, you've done a great job of asserting yourself as a personality. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's another interesting subject, uh, whether or not you want to be camera forward or not. And I appreciate your, your approach there. You're, you're definitely camera forward and you do a great job with it. 
for me, I'm a little bit more camera shy. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of the questions I ask on this show are real world questions. There's something that would help somebody in their day-to-day running of their business because a lot of people are small to medium shops. Talking with you gives me the opportunity to go a little beyond that. We mentioned in passing a few of the the big jobs that you've done, but you have done some tremendous jobs for some tremendous companies. So I'm going to ask a question that may be aspirational for some people about some of the bigger jobs that you've done, one of the more impressive jobs that stand out for you, and how you go about taking on these jobs that are a lot different than, say, your run-of-the-mill homeowner or designer or GC. There is some pretty interesting projects and that we've done over the years, for sure. And, uh, and uh, I know it's, I guess, uh, you know, I, I try not to, to talk about these things too much. You know, I like to talk about my company because I'm proud of it, but I, I try not to be too much of a braggart, I guess. If, if you're going to nail me down and ask me about. Well, I'm, ask, it, I'm definitely... asking, I'm asking. So you don't have to, sure. you, don't, you don't have to stand on principles because this is a part of the interview. This is answering a question that I directly asked you. So go, so All go right. for Sounds it. Sounds good. Yeah, I know some of them are even quite small and some are some are big. You know, a number of years ago we made a really cool coffee table for for Paul Allen that was kind of a, unusual. It had hydraulics in it. We bought actual hydraulic system to raise the top of this thing and it had a leaf on it that came out on linear rollers, had a little Cat 5 connection and an outlet on it. So that that was kind of cool. Um, not too long ago I worked with an artist friend of mine and we made a cool gizmo out of of metal for for Jeff Bezos. It was a inverted pendulum, sort of a little scientific gizmo thing. I guess not super cool, but you know, the space needle is cool. So we just put some light fixtures on the space needle. Let's see, we, we built Howard Schultz's staircase recently for his foundation there. It's all stainless steel. We've always got Microsoft projects going, Amazon, always Facebook always Google. Um, For Google, we made this really cool gizmo thing. It was like a, we took a Google bike, which is those bikes they use on the campus there. And we made it into like a, a ticket taker for like the sandwich ordering place. These tech, tech facilities, they always have places where you can go get free food and what have you on campus. So anyway, the, you'd write out your sandwich order and you put it on a clip and this, the bike was attached to this belt system that drove, that drove the sandwich ticket across and over the room and down and dropped it in a little basket. I still got a couple of Google bikes as a result of that. I got I got to put together, but I mentioned that, you know, we're starting to look at that project. We're putting a 747 in a building. Gosh, it's just, we just sort of put ourselves in the way of all these interesting projects and they just sort of come over the years. That's a few of them. <laughs> I don't know. We've done a, we've done a lot of cool stuff and uh, looking forward to the cool stuff we're going to do in the future. You have the, the portfolio that you and your company have is amazing to look at and just, and is a little bit mind blowing if, if I can say that, but oh, I want to take those projects that you've done, bring it back to the small and medium-sized companies, because 
you can be a small shop and make something really amazing, but then you have to figure out how you show that off. So when you make these mind-blowing, ridiculous projects, how do you then translate them back to get the next one, to get the next project that keeps pushing your company forward? I started out doing high-end residences here in Bellingham. You, you work with a, with a sort of a second or third tier home builder and you do something cool for them, which you can then demonstrate to a second tier or a first tier home builder that you can do the work, right? And sometimes it's a bit of a stretch and you really have to sell them and, and uh, because they might be apprehensive to hire this person who doesn't, hasn't necessarily worked on a $3 million home before or whatever the case is, you know? But if you're good at what you do, they could typically see it. And plus, you know, if you're you're good at selling your skills, that always helps as well. So, you know, recognizing that you know video is a is a great way to do that, and the internet obviously is a, a terrific platform for that type of uh, marketing as well. That's what motivated me to get into shoot videos. That wasn't, you know, I've never actually done the you know the videography myself. I've just always sort of been in a position where I'd hire somebody and, and, uh, be a part of directing it. And, uh, you know, we, we did a lot of videos over the years, um, for like over a hundred, which are all sort of project-based videos. Um, who knows what it might be a staircase or a sign or some garden features or whatever, but whenever I need to, sell into a space or, you know, say I want to, I'm talking to a landscape architect and I want to prove to them that I can do garden gates or retaining walls or whatever the case is, I can usually pull out a video on it and say, oh yeah, I'll send you a video about the making of one that we did not too long ago. So it's a, it's a pretty incredible tool. So it's always been sort of incremental and you're always sort of reaching a bit. If you're not reaching, then if you're probably sort of staying on the same plateau, but just utilizing the work that you've done, you know, your, your portfolio of work, be it photographs or videos or whatever the case might be, sort of utilizing it to take another step, you know, to, to reach a little higher. For example, when I sort of, you know, tapped out the Bellingham market in terms of the high-end home builders, didn't really, you know, tap out necessarily. I just wanted to grow bigger than this small market that we're in would allow you know i took my portfolio work to the seattle market and it was kind of hard to break into it to tell you the truth um it was hard to get people um that were you know 80 miles away to believe that we could build products for them and do it successfully for their home and uh but you know once i did i, I got to work with these sort of you know second tier high-end home builders that were they were smaller companies themselves and, uh sort of doing nice work for them and was able to use that portfolio to go to the, the highest end home builders and say, Hey, I'd like to work with you guys. And here's the work that I did for these other companies. And they, you know, they all know each other. And uh, so I, one of the, one of the ways that we sort of transition, our biggest transitions came by way of us actually just myself, I suppose, deciding that I wanted to be in the commercial fabrication space. After you work in a market long enough, you sort of realize, you know, where the end of the market is. And for me, the the high-end residential thing could only go so far. 
and I wasn't done and I'm not done. <laughs> so I wanted to, I wanted to keep going. So it was like, all right, well, if we want to keep going, we have to get into commercial work here. Luckily, working with these sort of really high-end home builders in the Seattle market, luckily they tend to do restaurants and things of that nature. So we worked with a couple of these home builders who also do these restaurant rebuilds or TIs, I guess you should call them, and uh, did all the cool features for them. Um, And having done a couple of restaurants, we were able to now say we do commercial work. And so we took that portfolio and then we pitched it to the big GCs, you know, the people like Skanska and, uh, and others like that. And uh, it, was, it was always a little bit surprising when, you know, somebody like Skanska hires this small little shop and gives them a scope of work that's like, you know, more than you made last year <laughs> combined from, from one customer and uh and they know that they're sort of putting themselves out there too um, they being the people that are awarding your work but you know, just they trust you because uh they've seen the work you've done in the past so it's again it's always always a bit of a stretch it's a reach you know i've i've had general contractors award us work and then they've kind of gotten trouble a little bit from their their financial side They're like what are you doing given this shop that only has you know x dollars in revenue this much work because you know contracting at that level is it's all about risk mitigation basically <laughs> so so you know if getting somebody to take a risk on you in the, the commercial space areas can be a little bit difficult but you know kind of bringing it back around it's 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 always about reaching and 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 utilizing your portfolio of work and just sort of convincing and proving to people that you can do it and once you've proven it to the people at that level you can prove it to the people at the next level it's all about making those stepping stones for yourself. And it doesn't matter if it's your first week having a company or you've had one for 30 years and you have 100 employees. It's all about doing the work and then being able to show that you can do that work. And that is true for every stage of a business's development. Yeah, for sure. There are people out there who want to start their own companies who are even before that first week of business. It's just an idea in their head, but they have that passion and they have that drive and they want to make a go at having their own company. And then there's also people who have been doing this for a long time and they have had success, but they want more success. From your experience in every aspect of the industry from the beginning to where you are now, what's some advice that you could share with people out there who want to succeed like you have? Yeah. And I I don't really consider myself successful. You know, I I tried to try to stay humble and what have you. (laughs) That's being very modest, very modest. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, in terms of, you know, advice, I think it's, uh, again, it's, it has everything to do with just sticking with it. You know, you can, you can take 
a moderately good idea and almost a bad idea and just work it, work it, work it and be successful at it. You know, it's just all about how much effort that you're willing to put in with it and how, how much time you're willing to put into it. And that's, you know, the same message that most anybody would tell you in business, but it's just true. One of the most important things I would say too is, uh, is, uh, and I don't want to say not be afraid of failing, but not be afraid to start again if you fail. You know, that's that's an interesting thing about my business is is I actually had started it for I had it for a year previous to its current iteration, and uh, it was sort of a dismal failure. Um, I did some cool work and had some cool projects, but it was like probably one of the most stressful times in my life, and it was just bad timing things things you don't really know until you know like <laughs> not having health insurance you know, or, or having a single income you know, or having a new child just uh just was my situation there all three of those combined and then just not knowing how to do business not knowing how to build things properly so you can have even cash flow and what have you but the, I guess my, my bigger point is that you may fail and that's, that's okay. I'm not one of those people that preaches that you have to fail, but the point is that you just try again. And uh, I tried architectural elements again. And, and the, the second time I came back into it after working four years for other people and, and I knew what to do. I'd made, made a lot of mistakes. I didn't make them all, but I learned enough and uh, learned enough going back to work with other people and trying to learn more that was appropriate to what it was I wanted to do that made another run at it. So, you know, the, I guess my message is just stick to it. And, uh, and then if you fail, just keep trying, you'll get there eventually. Pushing forward like you have to get to a place where I know you won't say it, but I'll say it you are successful like you are is the way that you run a business if you want to be again successful i want to thank you for sitting down with me and sharing your insights and sharing your incredible journey from where you started to where you are today so thank you from me and from everybody listening and Sure, absolutely. I wish you the best in your journey moving forward. Thanks so much for listening to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast anywhere you like to listen. To learn more about the show, you can visit buildingafurniturebrand.com. And feel free to reach out anytime to say hey, ask a question, or suggest a guest for future episodes. Our email is hello at buildingafurniturebrand.com. You can follow along with me on Instagram at thebuildwithethan, and I can't wait to bring you the next episode. This show is produced and edited by me, Ethan Abramson. Hope you enjoyed, and thanks so much for listening. The Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson podcast is proudly part of the Woodpreneur Network the media network and community for wood entrepreneurs. Check out woodpreneurlife.com for more information.